How about UVA football? What? It's so exciting to know that the Cavaliers beat the devil, right? And you know this is all in jest, for the most part. And uh, I'm excited about this morning. The reason why this is kind of an exciting morning in that once a year and periodically, I make sure that I take a, a Sunday morning to re-up to us the vision of City Church. What we know in corporate studies are that if the vision and the mission are not re-upped every 28 days, there's what's called mission drift. Happens very easily. And so what I wanted to do this morning was to reaffirm and to confirm again, ultimately, the three pillars that make City Church who we are. And so I know this is Vision Sunday, and a lot of times when people hear vision, they want to hear about buildings or what. I want us to agree together again to the fundamental realities that God, through Christ and through the Scriptures, has called us to do and be. So ultimately, what we're going to look at this morning is that the idea of who we are, what we are, and why we do what we do. It's extremely important. And so if you've ever been to city for any length of time, more than two weeks, you know that at the beginning of almost every single sermon, I will announce this. It's our vision. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church called to radically love and practically serve the city of Charlottesville and surrounding counties. It's what we're about. But what I wanted to do very specifically this morning is to look at the three kind of pillars or anchors or these foundational realities on what City Church has been built on. And oh, by the way, these are the things that I learned as I have read through the scriptures for decades and come to believe that these are to be lived personally as well. And they are simply this, biblically based relationally driven, and spirit-led. That's not just for our church. This is for us as individuals as well. And so I'm going to very specifically go through all three of these this morning. If you've heard them before, please do not tune out. Because Jesus, we can tell in the Gospels, at times taught the same things over and over again because they're important and I believe that these three are. So what does it mean that we are a biblically-based church? Well, it begins with a passage of Scripture that is exceptionally profound. It's found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. And I want to say at the outset that my notes will be posted up next to the sermon as they always are if you want to go back and look at these texts again. But 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, makes this stunning announcement. The Bible actually self-affirms itself through the authors that have written it. Here's what Timoth Paul writes to Timothy. All Scripture is God-breathed 
and it is useful for teaching, rebuking. We love the first one. We don't like the second one. I love teaching, but no rebuking. Wait till we get through our sermon series in 1 Corinthians. Again, the title of it, that whole series is going to be entitled Messy Church. Rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped to sit there and do nothing. No, all scripture is God-breathed so that you and I can become something in Christ so that we can do something for him. That's the intentionality of Scripture. That we can become something in Jesus so that we can do something for Jesus. Would you notice that Scripture is God-breathed so that we can become something through teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that we can go out there and do good works. It's fascinating that the book of James would say this. Faith without works is dead. It's dead. Now please know this, that at the beginning of that passage that we just read, Paul writes to Timothy that all Scripture is God-breathed, God-inspired. God is behind this book that we call the Bible. And in that... It is a unique book. And I would argue there is none other like it. None. But again, notice in 2 Timothy that the idea is is that when this text comes alive in us, we are transformed, and as we are transformed through it, we become agents of transformation in the culture that we're called to live in. And what is stunning to me is not only did God ask people and inspire people to write this book, that God still uses people to live out this book to transform the world that he has created. I want to say emphatically that almost every sermon that I ever preach has this slide in it, feet to your faith. Why? Because if we have learned something and the scriptures are transforming us, there needs to be a practical outworking of what we have just learned. We call it here at City, feet to your faith. Now here's what I also know, because I've been serving as a pastor in and around two different graduate and undergraduate institutions over the last 30 years. The first 10 years... I spent pastoring at a university in New Jersey, and the last 20 plus years, I've served pastoring here, a church near the University of Virginia. Here's what I know. I know that there are many who make a full-time job out of attacking Scripture. That's what they do. It's fascinating that that all kind of gained traction during the Enlightenment, and there was a famous philosopher who was one of the engines behind the Enlightenment where people began to trust in their own knowledge, their own understanding, and who they are in order to make a better world. 
One of the leading engines of that was a philosopher by the name of Voltaire. And here's what he proclaimed. He proclaimed in 1760 or so. He claimed in, in that approximate time frame, he announced publicly as an enlightened person that within 25 years, the Bible would be forgotten and Christianity would be a thing of the past. What was fascinating, though, was that 40 years after Voltaire's death, the home that he owned had been turned into a place where Bibles were being distributed and Christian literature was being printed and handed out to thousands. Now listen, there were other ingredients in Voltaire's grievances with the Bible. Much of it was because of what the church had done and what he had seen. That must be mentioned. That the church represents Scripture and represents God in the world in so many ways. Now to get off that topic, because it's quiet in here, let's move to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the writer of the book of Hebrews makes this stunning announcement. Again, the Bible self-validates itself through its authors. The writer writes, For the word of God is alive and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Isn't it stunning that the writer of the book of Hebrews would announce that the word of God is alive? It's alive. And what you'll notice is if you were to read this in Greek, the word for alive is at the beginning of the sentence. It says this, alive, the word of God is active. Alive is the primary thought. Now here's what I know, is that the Gospels declare, and the book of Hebrews says, that when the Word of God is alive, it becomes this precise surgical tool with which God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can do surgery on us that is so exact that it separates the soul from the spirit, the mind, the will, and the emotion from the spirit, and it is so precise, it would be like a fine cutting tool that can cut marrow out of the bone. That stuns me. No wonder some people don't want to read the Bible. Because if you read it, it comes alive. And when it comes alive, it begins to reveal the truth about us. And again, Hebrews tells us it's like a razor blade, and it can do surgery on the soul. I think many of us need that, even if we don't want it, because God only cuts us to heal us, ever, ever. It's because he loves us. Now, here's what I learned this week, is that if the word of God is like a razor blade, and it's precise, and it cuts. I experienced this week something, and it was actually yesterday, 
that involved a very precise razor blade. Here's what I experienced. If we could put up the next slide. That was embedded in my wife's tire. My afternoon was planned. I'm an outdoorsman. I was going to go into the woods and have tons of fun. And then my wife calls me. My tire is flat. Ugh. But because I love her so much, <laughs> I put aside my plans and I went to look at the van. The tire was totally flat and I was pumping it up. And as I jacked it up and spun the tire, here's this razor blade sticking out of our tire. I don't know how in the world that happens. How can a car going 40 miles an hour pick up a razor blade? I have no clue. But here's what I do know. It was precise. It cut perfectly. What a bummer. But when we look at Scripture, Scripture stands in front of us and says, I'm here. Do you want to get better? Do you want to be transformed? I'm here. And it's amazing what the writer of Hebrews writes. The writer of Hebrews says that Scripture can come in and can judge the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart, meaning our motives, our deepest thoughts, the center of who we are. And by the way, whenever you read the, the word heart in the Bible, know that biblically the heart is the center of who you are. In other words, the Word of God shows up not to trim the edges, but to get to the center of the matter. Well, obviously, some would say, and rightly so, how is it then if the Bible is so powerful that people can read it and study it and never be transformed? That's a great question. And I would say this, that if we come to Scripture academically and distant and without our hearts and without faith, it will be nothing but another academic exercise. But if we actually come to the Scripture in faith and with humility and openness, seeking and knocking, I have never met a person that has done that, that has left this book not saying that their life has been transformed. As a matter of fact, Jesus was keenly aware that we can come to the Scriptures and we can do so in a way that has no effect. In John chapter 5, verses 39 through 40, Jesus looks at the scribes and the Pharisees and those that study the Bible, and he said to them, you study the Scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life. Just by studying them, somehow you will get eternal life. And Jesus announces these are the very Scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I want you to notice what Jesus says. He looks at people that are experts in all the Older Testament books, and he said, you have spent your life studying them, but you cannot hear what it's trying to tell you. And then Jesus does something that is shocking. He announces that the first two-thirds of your Bible is about him. That is stunning. 
So here we have the Bible. There are 66 books. There are 40 authors. It took 1,500 years to write this book. There's history in it, philosophy in it, there's theology in it, there's systematic thinking in it. There's also hundreds of prophecies. Please understand, and I'm trying to get you to consider Scripture because my concern is there are those who walk with Jesus but don't really enter the Scriptures. Please understand this, that you take all of these 66 books and they point to one person. And what's always been stunning to me is if you look at the Older Testament, how there is one consistent thread through 1,500 years, and it points to one single person. And there in the Gospel of John, Jesus announced that it was him. Jesus quoted, quoted 24 Old Testament books. Only six of the Old Testament books remain unquoted in the Newer Testament, but all Older Testament books are alluded to. And I would say two more things about the Bible before we move on. This book has been around for 3,500 years. It came together, yes, 1,500 years ago, but it is the book that has been the most studied the most objected to, and the life of Jesus over the past 2,000 years has been the one life that has been more critically inspected than any other life that has ever lived. Many have announced that this book and the life of Jesus should be long gone, and yet here we are, talking again about this book and the man of whom this book speaks. When I was a chaplain at Princeton, Bruce Metzger was a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary. He is the best known, and I should say he was the best known, and the most trusted New Testament scholar to have ever graced the last 120 years. Bruce, while teaching at the seminary, made this stunning announcement, and I can remember it well. He said that he had looked at over 5,000 ancient documents that substantiate the Bible as being trustworthy, and he statistically announced that there's over a 99% chance that the Bible can be trusted on every single front just by looking at over 5,000 ancient documents. And oh, by the way, not that long ago, someone who was writing a book about George Washington announced they would do anything to have this many documents on George Washington. They would do anything to have the historic veracity that the Bible has just on George Washington, but they don't. But for me, when I think about this book, it always comes to one thing. And that's the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Because you see, the Older Testament points to him, and he pointed to this. He said, and everyone heard him, that if you kill me, and you will, 
on the third day, I will rise from the dead. And when I do, there's going to be a whole new form of life that is available for anyone who would want it. Another stunning thing that Jesus said, and it can't be lost, and for those of you that are reading the Newer Testament, look for this. Jesus not only said that the entire Bible points to him, but there were times in the Gospels where he will say something like this. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. Jesus stood in authority over Scripture. Never forget that. And when Jesus does, you better lean in. Because when he does, he's announcing some truths through Scripture that have not yet been called for before. We're going to get to one of those in just a moment. Not only did Jesus announce, you have heard it said, but I tell you, but others watched his life, they observed him, and they began to recognize that Jesus did have authority in Scripture. Because of that, now let's move on to pillar number two. We are not only a biblically-based church, we are a relationally-driven church. And this comes out of an incredible interaction that Jesus has, and it's found in Matthew 22, 35 through 40. Here's what it says. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with the question, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And what was Jesus teaching? Jesus was teaching us that if you look at the scriptures, you will come to understand that relationship is the most important thing in life. Our spiritual relationship with God and our natural relationships and our spiritual relationships with people. Love God, love people. And that's why this is the second foundational pillar of City Church. We are a relationally driven church. That's why Pastor Keith is on our staff to oversee life groups. Because life groups is where life happens. Where people study the scriptures together and hold themselves accountable. Not only are there small groups and life groups, but all of our pastors utilize small groups in everything they do. Pastor Chris uses them with our children Pastor Scott uses them in our youth group. Why? Because environments for relationship must be built within the church structure because Jesus announced that they are important. Not only this, but this is why I've run soul care here at City Church. We've had hundreds of people go through soul care. Why do we run it? Because our relationships are the most important thing. And if we need freedom and we need our brokenness taken care of in order to have relationships that are healthy, that's why we run soul care. And Pastor Gabe, that's why he runs emotionally healthy 
different classes so people can come and get spiritually healthy and emotionally healthy. That's also why Pastor Gabe runs Grief Share and he runs Stephen's ministry so that people who are struggling can have someone partner and journey with them. Why do we do all this? It's because relationship truly is the essence of life. And then Jesus went on to say this, Matthew 5, 23 through 24. Think about how important relationship is to Jesus. He says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Stunning. If you're going to the temple to bring a sacrifice to God, leave your sacrifice. Go make your earthly relationships right and then return to offer your gift of worship. That is shocking to me. Please know that relationship is primary to Jesus. And then with our last thought for what it means to be relationally driven, I want to be absolutely clear. If you are not a follower of Jesus, what we're going to look at next is not for you. But if you are, this is for you and for me. Matthew 5, 43 through 47. You have heard that it was said, remember? When that is mentioned by Jesus, lean in. Jesus is now taking authority through Scripture. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, and for the first time ever in recorded human history, the next words are spoken. There's three. Love your enemies. No one had ever said that before. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. And just so that this sermon was totally in context for today, let's look at the next phrase. And he sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what, re- what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. You see, Jesus makes this call that if you're going to follow him, our love, your love, has to go beyond human love. And that's where we look at things like loving those who persecute you and praying for them. And you think to yourself, how can I ever love my enemies? But if Jesus calls me to that, then I must move towards it. And the last pillar comes in just in time. We are spirit-led. Because I can tell you that being relationally driven is impossible without the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. You will always meet someone that you wish you had never met. If they're sitting next to you, turn and smile at them now. I can tell you this, and my wife would agree, 
And I love my wife. But if it were not for the Holy Spirit and the power of forgiveness, we would have never made it. It takes Christ. It takes the Word of God. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit to be working in people's hearts and lives if relationship is really going to work. Now, I do want to be clear. I do not view my wife as my enemy. But Jesus announced in John chapter 14, verse 16, he says to his disciples after he tells them that he is leaving, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, which is the name for attorney, someone that will stand with you to help you and be with you forever. In other words, the Holy Spirit will be sent into the world and arrives on the day of Pentecost. And every single follower of Jesus has the Spirit available to them and the Spirit with them. He goes on to say, does Jesus in John 16, 13, he announces, but when he, the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He's not just going to point you in the right direction. He is the Spirit of truth. And when you say yes to Jesus and the Holy Spirit dwells in you, you now have the Spirit of truth living in you, and He will guide you into even deeper truth. You see, notice that the Holy Spirit is announced as a person. But when He the Spirit of truth comes. This is relational. It's personal. And when He comes, He will guide you into all truth. I want to encourage you. You maybe have come from a Christian background where the Holy Spirit is never mentioned. Know this, that from the moment Jesus talked about His death, He began to talk about the Holy Spirit and that the Christian life would be a life that is only lived through the indwelling and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. In closing, we move towards a verse that we will look at in our Messy Church series starting next week. It's a passage found in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Here the Apostle Paul is now speaking of the Holy Spirit and he makes this announcement, for we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to, to form one body, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free. And in other words, it doesn't matter who you are. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. In other words, God by his spirit are going to take people who naturally despise each other, Jews, Gentiles. He will take people who economically are at opposite ends of the spectrum, slave, free. And the power of the Holy Spirit will gather these people together and through the working of Jesus, through the preaching of Scripture, God is going to grab people together and when He does, in one Spirit, they will become united. And from the very first references of the earliest of churches, we see stunning accounts by Roman officials as they peer inside Christian worship and they are shocked because sitting united in worship are Jews and Gentiles, slave people and freed people, men 
and women. And as they gather together in worship, the Roman Empire is stunned. Because for those people sitting there, if it were not for Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, no way, Jose. So here we are as a church. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church. But my prayer for you is that is how you would live your life every single day. That you would read the Scriptures. Because when you read the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit has something close at hand to work with, to work in our hearts and to work in our lives. I have watched over the past 30 years of full-time ministry. I have watched as people have stepped towards Scripture. And in doing so, their hearts begin to open. As they journey with other people who are walking with Jesus, I've watched their hearts open and their lives be transformed even more. And then as the Holy Spirit begins to work in and through those relationships and in and through the preaching and teaching and individual, private, personal study of Scripture, their lives become transformed. I've lost count of how many people I've observed this transformation happen to. But here's what God desires for you and for me. That through these three pillars, being biblically based, relationally driven, and spirit-led, that God transforms our individual lives. He then begins to transform our families. Then he begins to transform communities. And then he begins to transform culture. In closing, there are four words I want you to be familiar with, and most of you already are. It's on the huge banner as you get ready to walk into worship. Simply this. Follow Jesus, serve others. It's what life's about spiritually. It's about follow Jesus and serve others. And how that happens in your life and mine is to be biblically based, relationally driven, and spirit-led. Would you stand with me? As we stand together, Stephen and the worship team are going to lead us in worship. As they do, would you please be open to the assessment of God's Spirit? The Holy Spirit is here. Where two or three are gathered, He's always there. When Scripture is opened in faith, He is always there. 